In the picturesque little town of Burville, Rhode Island, is a small farm with a house that is a legend to be the source of some extraordinary paranormal evidence that ultimately led to a Hollywood film. Today, we talk about The Conjuring House. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a new episode of the Chaos and Shadow podcast. My name is Kyle, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Pagan. How you doing this week, Pagan? I'm doing great. We are having a different filming day for this, which is fun because it's a holiday week, but it's a good week so far. Indeed. How are you doing? I am doing well. I'm very excited. It is the day before Thanksgiving here that we're recording it. It is uh, it is November 25th. So huge thank you to everyone that is listening to this show. We appreciate you guys. It is that time of year, especially showing all the gratitude. And I was thinking about that today. Um, we truly just kicked this off as a passion project this summer. And... It is all thanks to you guys that we've been able to grow the show beyond what we had ever really expected with it. So thank you to everyone out there listening and supporting. We couldn't do it without you. That is very true. Thank you all so much. And we adore you that you guys love the show and are continuing to go on this journey with us. Oh, an ever-growing journey. Into, yes, and we should definitely jump into this exciting tale in this exciting case. Indeed. So today we are talking about The Conjuring House. Now, this is an interesting case. Pagan, you brought this to my attention. Why was that? Yes. It's an interesting case because I went into it with the whole, ooh, this is a big scary case. Ooh, oh, I'm so excited and all this. And then as I started doing the research, I'm like, oh, I this isn't as terrifying as I expected it to be. It's actually a really sad case. And, and sad in some very, I, I guess you could say sad in the ways of, wow, I didn't expect the people to actually do that. And also sad that some of the real life consequences of this case actually happen. So we'll talk more about that as it goes on. But it just in a lot of ways, it was very different than what I expected. So uh, not to say there's not some spooky bits. There are, but it just it didn't live up to the hype. So I'm still excited about it. It's still a very interesting case. But as we go through it, you'll actually find out more of why I kind of came to those conclusions. Yeah, let's start with the background of the house. So the house in question was created in 1736, belonging to the mm -hmm. Arnold family. So looking at the time period of this house, um, this is... First of all, if you've seen the film, you've seen a very different house than The Conjuring Home in reality. Definitely do yourself a favor and look at the vault notes that are attached to this episode. You're going to get to see a difference between the two. It is, it is very vast. The film sets uh, up a house that is in North Carolina. It's very much a plantation-style looking home, whereas the mm -hmm. one in this case... Uh, being up north, has more of a log cabin look to it from the exterior. And it's a house mm -hmm. that grew over time. It started much smaller, but as it passed through the hands of this family, it was expounded upon, and it gets its uh, infamy starting around 1970 when the Perrin family gets a hold of it. They bought the house and the 200-acre farm in 1970. The house seemed perfect okay. for their family of seven and even stayed in the home for an additional 10 years. Mm-hmm. They did. So it, it's one of those wonderful things that they bought this great little picturesque house. They thought it was going to be perfect for their kids to grow up in. They had five beautiful daughters. Uh, they thought it was going to just be a wonderful home, and it wasn't. <laughs> so the family actually didn't even move in until January of 1971 because uh, Carolyn, uh, she actually wanted to start the new year in a new home with basically a whole new life. That's what they she wanted for her family, and that's why they didn't move in until January. Interesting. So not long before, after they got into the house, the first bit of activity starts at night. 
they start hearing whispering voices, which terrified the children. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cindy in particular runs to her sister Andrea's room for comfort. Andrea asked her what had happened. And she said that the voices said that there were dead soldiers buried in the walls. Yes. And that's that's not something you hear very often, or at least not that I've come across. Buried soldiers in the walls. What do you think was behind that? Buried? They, I remember when um, I watched the Ghost Adventures crew episode of this, God, like last year, and they suspected that the soldiers weren't buried in the actual walls of the uh-huh. home, but buried in the outside wall around the property. There's actually like a very old stone wall that's kind of, you know, oh. decayed over the years that was probably built there, you know, in the 1700s when the house was built. And they think that the wall was actually expanded upon during the Revolutionary War and possibly some of the soldiers were buried around that wall. They don't. That's all speculation. Nothing has actually been confirmed, but that's what they did suspect. So I don't know. Maybe there are soldiers buried out there. Hmm. I, I guess we'll I guess we'll see here as, as we get into this episode. What other uh, sort of craziness appears because it goes beyond that. Strange sounds and voices continued, and soon the family was concerned enough to reach out to paranormal investigators and demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren in 1973. And this happened a bit differently than we we see portrayed in the film. Um, yes. Because there there was kind of just different levels between this, and it, it took place in different orders. It wasn't Ed Lorraine alone that went into this case, um, but but a more expansive story. And I, I I do feel like in some ways the film does a good job at portraying some of this paranormal activity. Um, it it yes. it really foreshadows it well, as the case points out too. It it started with apparitions in some ways as well. Is that right? They started mm-hmm. seeing people yes. almost immediately in accompaniment with the voices, right? Yes, they did. And the the Andrea actually said that there was a man standing behind Mr. Uh, Kenyon, um, who is the former owner. And interestingly enough, he's the former owner, but he is also one that is very limitedly like referenced in any of the records. I think that there's just like his deed stating that he owned it. And that was about it. Nothing else on record for him. So in that regard, he was not one of the, I guess you could call him keynote people in the story of this property. Um, But when on the day that they were moving in, Andrea claimed that she saw a man standing there with him. And she asked her mother who he was. And her mother's like, nobody's there. It's just him. And she ran back to look. And the girls all said that they had apparently seen this man and they all saw that he had disappeared. Now, the interesting part of this is they don't say if they all saw that man at the same time and he all disappeared at the same time or if it was all at different times. It's one of those things that they've never really alluded to that, you know, how it actually worked. But Andrea is one of the ones that they did claim that she went back and the man was gone. Interesting. Yes, it is interesting. It's very interesting how you have five girls who all claim to see the same thing, but yet we don't know exactly in succession how they how the whole story with that seeing that man actually t- plays out. So that's an interesting point for me. Yeah, and I mean when we look at this case, we are looking at uh, well, I, okay. Let me let me backtrack and say. I watched The Conjuring, the 2013 film. Uh, I watched it too. A couple nights ago. And it was mm-hmm. fun to watch it knowing that the plots were going to be based on one another, but also knowing it was going to be very different. So when I was mm-hmm. watching the film, I was watching it with a bit of like a chuckle and having fun and actually looking at it from an investigative standpoint. And Mm -hmm. in both cases, one of the things I noticed immediately when reading the real case versus the film, I mean, you are looking at something that could easily channel in poltergeist activity as we know it. You've got five young women all around the puberty age. And we know uh, from other famous things, such as like the Enfield Mm -hmm. haunting and stuff, again, very much poltergeist activity based on young girls. Uh, 
that's yep. how that activity is basically summed up. So when going into this, I was like, this is very interesting. We're looking at a house that has multiple entities or multiple ways of at least manifesting from the whispers mm-hmm. to being a man to all kinds of other stuff. It does start to paint a picture that gets pretty dark, especially when you imagine all of these, again, young children living in this house with all of this activity. Yes. And, you know, that's interestingly enough, that was kind of one of the things that I also was looking at, too. This is a house that prior to this family had no reports of paranormal activity in it at all, like zilch. And this family moves in and suddenly now there is paranormal activity in this house that lasted for a decade and then some. So now we we have a lot of things that are happening and it really starts to paint the question of, is the property itself haunted or was the family haunted? Mm. So it, it's a very interesting question that you really kind of have to wonder is, did the, the paranormal activity come with them? And there's rumor that actually speculates that Carolyn wanted out of their old house and there was no real reason why, but she really wanted out and she was kind of terrified and wanted to move very quickly. And they kind of just stumbled upon this house and they were looking, but they weren't looking. And so they, uh, when they stumbled upon this house, they very quickly bought it up, thought it was perfect, thought it was away from everything that they were already trying to, I guess, in a sense, run from. And then they move in, thought it was going to be a perfect fresh start for their family. And now here they are. And there's a whole bunch of paranormal activity. So I guess the question really becomes is, did they have paranormal activity in their previous home? And nobody's ever asked them that question. To my knowledge, at least no one's ever asked them that. That's a great question. I'm wondering, yeah, if anyone out there listening knows an answer to Pagan's question there, uh, if they've been asked, that would be so interesting to find out. The film paints it very much that the house was to blame, right? Like they go, mysterious things are happening. I know I was joking with Pagan. I was like, I it, in the film, it is worth a watch. I do love James Wan's work. The film was very good, by the way, if you, you take it for strict fiction. Yeah. It's a very good movie. And I don't like horror movies at all, but I did enjoy it. It, it was actually a good movie to watch. Would you agree that, uh, in my opinion, James Wan, uh, and again, this comes from a guy that got to work with him in, in the publicity sense. I, I think he takes responsibility in these these horror films versus others like when he talks about the paranormal i believe he truly does some good research on it because when he puts it on screen he does not make crazy fantastical monsters out of nothing and in fact i think he uses like the less is more approach to convey this stuff and that to me does get you um there's some annabelle scenes in there they use a scarier annabelle doll uh for prop's sake but like when they use it they use it in a way that like it's not like chucky it's not doing all these crazy things but you're seeing energy and things happen around it much like what is said to happen in real life if you believe that Mm -hmm. so um talking about this plot again a they go to the house they find a music box that's the related to all this trouble and boom everything goes from there whereas in real life again i think you might be right pig and i get the vibe having read over this that they might have been haunted as a family in some sense Mm -hmm. before coming here but that isn't to say that the property is without its tragedies though right it has quite a few it has it has a few tragedies not as many as speculated um by the perrin family We'll get to that in a bit. There's a lot of misconceptions with that. And I was actually able to dig up the records of who died where and what actually happened. So. Let, let's let's dive into those guys right now. Talk about what actually okay. happened on the farm there if you want to kick off so, with some names. Yeah. Um, Andrea Perrin wrote the three books um, basically talking about what happened over the 10-year course of everything that happened in the family and she they made a lot of uh accusations of who what spirits were responsible who was responsible for this and all of the tragedy that 
kind of accumulated around their family. The problem is a lot of it has been completely unsubstantiated and has now been proven false. So, sorry guys, if, if you're all true believers in what she says, I apologize, I'm about to burst your bubble. Uh, she claimed that Mrs. John Arnold had um, allegedly been seen hanging from the barn on the property and was seen by her mother, Caroline. And Mrs. Susan Arnold, who happened to actually be married to John Arnold, wasn't 93 years old, like Carolyn said she was. She didn't hang herself in a barn. She passed away at the age of 50, several miles away, in her home, not even associated with this farm. Oof. Yeah. So, first pin in the bubble. Sorry. (laughs) Um... (laughs) John Arnold also was said to have committed suicide on this property in the house. John Arnold, who was born to Edwin Arnold, actually did grow up in the farmhouse, but he committed suicide in his home of Tarklin, several miles away from Burrowville. And I probably butchered that, but Northeast names elude me in their, in their interesting spellings. Tis true. So, uh, yeah, he, he didn't die in the home either. So, again... I'm sorry, she didn't do her research when they were making these accusations. Edwin Arnold um, did die of exposure in 1903. He had been missing for several weeks and was found a mile and a half from the farmhouse. It's possible that he found his way home, but he was so weak that he actually sat down uh, near a wall and just never woke up. Andrea claimed that Edwin was one of the men who froze to death underneath the blacksmith shop on the property. So, nope, he didn't die there either. Oh, Jarvis Smith passed away in 1901 in a rickety shed near the Edwin Arnold farmhouse. So he was on the property. Um, He apparently was drunk and came to rest in the shed and never woke up and also died of exposure. He was claimed to be the second man who died underneath the blacksmith shop. Again, he didn't die there, but he did die on the property. So... I guess points for being half right. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Uh, now we get to Jarvis uh, Smith. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I apologize. I just read Jarvis. Um, and then there was Prudence Arnold. Prudence Arnold was murdered at the age of 12 in Uxbridge, Massachusetts by William E. Knowlton. Her throat was slit to the point of almost decapitating her. She was raised on the Arnold farm until the age of three when her parents passed away. Andrea did claim that she was murdered in the house, but years later corrected saying that she was wrong and the spirits of Prudence, even though she wasn't murdered there, had returned to the farm. Lorraine, however, confirmed, stating that the girl had been murdered in the pantry, saying there was blood everywhere and the family should seal up the pantry. Prudence was murdered in a room upstairs, nowhere near a pantry. Oh, now (laughs) we're getting to the ultimate villain of our story, Bathsheba Sherman. Bathsheba had the most damaging claims against her. Bathsheba was said to be an evil Satan worshiping witch who sacrificed a baby by impaling a sewing needle into the base of its skull. The claims of murdering her child have never been substantiated. Bathsheba Sherman, who lived from 1814 to 1885, lived a nice long life, had four children, Julia, Edward Francis, Herbert, and George. None of the deaths, none of these deaths, by the way, only one of her children did survive, but the other three died of natural causes. I believe it was Herbert who actually lived to a ripe old age, actually married his fiance, Annie, and all that. Bathsheba never worked or lived around the Arnold State Farmhouse, and she's never been associated with the Arnold family. So we just kind of did away with every ghost that was named in the book that Andrea wrote, or the books, I should say, that Andrea wrote. And it now, should, pardon the interjection, if, if this yes. is to compliment Pagan's amazing research on this, that she has accompanying uh, documents, the uh, the newspaper obituaries to go for all of these folks, which I know she's planning yeah. on putting into the vault notes there. So again, I encourage you guys, go look at that stuff. Uh, you, gl- you, you mentioned it, but I, I would like to go back. 
yeah, mm-hmm. I, I understand. I do understand the internet makes this stuff very easy for us to find, but it yes. does seem like in in the writing of the book uh, that has become the definitive story, if you will, like next mm-hmm. to definitive story of the Conjuring House. That book didn't have these accuracies it didn't have the obituaries the documented true deaths of these folks so that makes me wonder was she just running off of um kind of like urban legend hearsay sort of stuff just like passed down by the neighbors and community like i there's actually claims to answer your question so i i have an answer for that um one of the uh historians that claimed to and I say claimed with air quotations for those of you who are listening to this um claimed to have given Carolyn all of this information which then she passed on to Andrea uh she ended up saying that this historian knew Bathsheba by the way he would have been in his late 90s by the time that they had this conversation so if he had known her but The interesting thing is his family said that he never actually knew her. So anything that he had, quote unquote, apparently told her was actually a lie. Uh, That being said, all of the other rumored stuff, nobody has any idea where it came from because all of this stuff is in the town records. Everything is accessible to the public. There is nobody who knows any crazy story of Bathsheba. The interesting thing is that story of Bathsheba actually didn't come out until after the Perrin family started talking about their experiences. So mm, I don't know. I'm not saying that they didn't, the family themselves didn't experience something. I believe they did. I believe they had some sort of experience, but I think that they pointed the fingers to all the wrong people. And ultimately they did a lot more damage than just this not just to the dead folks they did damage to living people as well i i watched a um i guess you could almost call it like a vlog i don't know um it was actually done by the owner of the home who bought it after the parent family moved away mm-hmm. and she actually talked about everything that went on with the movie with andrea and how andrew basically outed her name and all of her information ended up being accessed to the public. Whoa. And after the uh, movie came out, they they basically got stalked by fans for almost two years. Oh, the people that were like that owned the the actual house then. Yeah, after I, it was uh, Norma something. I would have to look up her name again officially, but I didn't want to include her information officially fair. into the vault notes because I, I truly feel like this woman's been through enough. Her family's been through enough. you'll find the link to the video in the vault notes um it is there you guys can go watch it you can listen to it on your own formulate your own opinions but it was heartbreaking to listen to and just the, the terrible stuff that came out of this and it came out of lies and so like i said i do believe that something happened there i know there's still paranormal activity that has been caught there since then and is still being caught there so I don't know officially where I guess the paranormal really began and where the crazy kind of ended. That is a great question. And I, I, it does make me wonder, we're going to talk again a little bit more about Ed and Lorraine Warren here for a bit. Mm-hmm. As someone that's been in the same room as Lorraine Warren, I, I, and, and seeing them on Paranormal State back in the day, I, I really like Lorraine in some senses. But as mm-hmm. I know more about the paranormal community, I, we've talked before about the damages that you and I think that they've done. Uh, yes. Especially, we, we've been on this kind of bent in a little bit. By no means is this like an anti-Warren rant. Because like I said, no. I, I find Lorraine Warren, when I when I was in, like when I met her, she came to our college to promote The Conjuring. I want to say she was there twice. Um, very, very nice woman. Like, I got no negative vibes being next to her. But I do think that their fear of anything inhuman automatically being demonic in their projection Mm -hmm. of the word demon onto anything that spooked them in the slightest 
not cool. That has, I think, done continuous residual damage. If mm-hmm. you know that and you watch the film, I don't know, Pagan, if you caught it because I, I flagged it for you. I did. But I, I, I want to take that as like a thing from the script writers of The Conjuring or from James Wan or however it got in there. But there is the scene at close to the start where Ed Warren's character sa- explains to a, a young girl what it, the, what the terminology for inhuman spirit is. She goes, you know, what is an inhuman spirit? He goes, or anything that isn't uh, has not been in human form, but is now in a spirit form is demonic. And he makes this like little rant about it for a half second. <laughs> and if you know the kind of hypocrisy of that statement if you understand that you know hey the paranormal space is vast what you're seeing could be your grandma trying to come through but she can only show up as a shadow figure like that does not mean Mm -hmm. she's the devil incarnate you should not be throwing holy water at her and like but that's what the warrens projected that is what came about from their stuff i don't personally believe maybe because i haven't learned enough about them i don't personally believe it comes from a place of malice but i do think it comes from a place of them being very afraid and instead of like taking the time to suss it out i think they took the easy route of anything that isn't jesus is automatically the devil and i don't think that plays out so well especially in cases like this because i think they may have Mm -hmm. stirred some of this stuff up as well Yes, they did. So an interesting fact, when they came in, um, they Carolyn was the one who actually informed the Warrens that it was Bathsheba, who was this terrible person who was responsible for all of it. Lorraine being a, and I'm going to say this again with quotations, because I really don't believe that she was. Um, she claimed being a psychic medium uh, that Bathsheba... She had also seen that Bathsheba was the connection to these hauntings. Soon after they arrived, they actually were able to secure a Catholic priest to come in and do a blessing of the home and of Carolyn, who was showing signs of oppression. Mm, and this is where it gets troubling. The blessing quickly turned into a seance, which, with religious provocation, was used to bring out whatever demonic entity was lurking in the home so they could send it back to hell. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Literally, when I I read this, by the way, I I condensed it from a much larger paragraph of actually went on. Um, It it was a a very terrible thing that, first of all, how does a priest agree to a seance? And secondly... When did the priest decide to go from a seance to religious provocation to sin? I'm so confused by this. I don't understand how that even came about. So the interesting thing is either the priest was so, I'm going to say, enraptured by the Warrens and the Warrens convinced the priest that this was a good idea, that the priest went along with it. or. So the priest had some very strange religious training that apparently came out of, you know, this 1920s seance is a cool kind of vibe. I, I, I don't know where this actually ended up being, but it was it took place in the dining room. And the bad thing was when they did the seance, I believe they actually did open a door to let something in. Because apparently Carolyn allegedly became possessed for just a few minutes, not very long. Her eyes rolled back in her head. She began to speak in an unidentified language before levitating and being thrown 20 feet into another room. So, again, where did they think this was a good idea? <laughs> I I do not know. I Like, reading over this... It seems like a, a case of a lot of people just, I, I don't know, huffing their own gases for an extended <laughs> period of time. Because, like, the just, I could, like, what you had set us up with with the cupboard um, mm-hmm. and, and Lorraine seeing something there. And with all these other cases of the, the, the family actually giving them a name, like Bathsheba and saying, oh, mm-hmm. this. 
again, it feels like everyone's taking each other's story and then adding an extra extreme to it. Oh, no. Oh, no. To the point that I do believe that this did become a case of even further manifestation. You know, I, I, yes. I personally get the vibe that there was definitely something poltergeisty going on. It is a large family. Mm-hmm. Uh, seven people under one roof. That's that's quite a bit. Again, six of them were women. Right. Five of them being what? Under the age of 13 ish, like all in the, uh, like, the Andre, I believe, was 16, 16 when they moved. 1516, I think. I that sounds um, pretty right to me. Like they're all in this mm-hmm. age of hyper hormonalness, and and that's when I experience the most activity in my life too. Like it's right in that mm-hmm. window where you're on the edge already, and then like everything else to add to it. I'm gonna say that this was a case of escalation due to manifestation, is my thinking so far. Mm-hmm. And I think that the the seance, I think the manifestation was already there. I think that it kind of followed the family Mm -hmm. because, again, there were no reports of any sort of haunting prior to this family moving in. So I think that they did bring it with them. I think that they might have opened a door. They might have had enough energy accumulating between all of them to create a man-made portal in that house which has continued to have activity there or it might even be residual from the 10 years that they were there and the i guess you could say almost pk manifestation that they were developing in that 10-year period with all those girls there and the heightened paranormal activity the fear the hyping of the warrens being there and the seance and the blessings and everything else in between By the time you get done with that and they eventually move out, that house is a hot zone. And it's basically like sticking a house in the middle of a war zone and expecting it, you know, none of that energy to have been absorbed in that building. We all know that's not the case. We all know that, you know, places that have had lots of war torn areas, um, you know, there's still residual energy from soldiers and people who've died there and all that. So there's no reason to say that this house that's been around for a very long time didn't have so much energy already in there. And they just basically walked in and lit the powder keg. So I don't know. I I think though, as Ed and Lorraine Warren came in, I think they meant to do good, but I think over the years they became charlatans. I don't think that they ended up doing good. And I think they did a lot more damage to the paranormal world than they actually did help it. I would second that. I remember uh, one of the first things that set me astray with them was uh, they uh, Lorraine, when she came and did her talk and everything, had photos from them being at a graveyard and it was Mm -hmm. the example of like why you should take multiple photos in a row because you might catch something in succession there right her photo that she showed was beyond reality she showed like a full skeletal manifestation where you could see the definition between like bones i i believe like it was i remember looking at this image and being like this is so out there that if this were true and having the following that you do this picture would be everywhere if this mm-hmm. were not somehow doctored and i don't know that it was for sure them that took the photo i don't know if that was just something they came into possession of i don't know if they chose to believe the person that gave it to them without any sort of critical eye like you said i i think they came into it trying to do good i think that they left it doing a lot of harm and um i i don't know i've not i've not talked to anyone that's ever worked with them hand in hand so uh i about it I've, I've never asked and i i'd be curious to know more it's this does seem to be a case that Though James Wan and them did a great job with the movie, mm-hmm. I think it was an exaggeration in real life. I think the, I think arguably the book in some ways is more of an exaggeration than the film is. It's I I would agree with that <laughs> most definitely. 
Like at least the film and, shows semi-real paranormal activity, like manifestations right, and this, yeah. and like it does go a little extreme, but not too far beyond. But this woman did conjure up fake deaths on the property in her novel. She did, and so. you know Andrea did a lot of damage, and you know she outed you know all of this stuff. She even told the the owner that came after the Perrin family, uh, Norma, that she had no she was not working with them the film was based off the warren files not based off of her books she out and out lied about this um norma actually went on to actually researching the warrens and actually found out that the one of the people i want to say that it was an association with oh god um the amityville horror house i want to say There was a child involved. I don't know if it was that one or a different case. Don't quote me on this. Um, I'd have to go back and actually reference the video. The video that's in the vault notes, you guys can go and watch it and hear this yourselves. But she actually did talk about the fact that there was a child that they performed a lot of exorcisms on. A lot. To an 11-year-old boy. And ultimately, they came out years later and the Warrens had written a book and published the book. And then there was going to be a film coming out about it. And they were going to republish the book. And the boy that had all these exorcisms done and his brother took the Warrens to court and sued them for a hell of a lot of money. Wow. Because they said it was all fake and it was abuse. Wow. Maybe they have a darker history than I know about. I... I after like listening to this, I, I definitely want to look into this for myself. I don't want to just take this yeah. woman's information. Don't get me wrong. Everything I found, she also had the exact same records that I had also discovered. So it was not anything of, you know, what she was saying about the house was incorrect. She actually had all the same records. It was all public record. Um, but everything that she had found on the Warrens, I definitely am going to look into myself, but she, she, um, opened up my eyes to possibly the, the Warrens may have been a lot more detrimental to the paranormal community than we originally thought they were. And I'm, you know, anybody who's a fan out there, all I'm saying is do the homework yourself. Yeah. And then formulate an opinion. Don't just take the Warrens at face value. Don't take any paranormal investigator at face value. Do your homework. Make sure they're actually telling you the truth and actually doing their own homework and doing their own research. That's one of the reasons why I didn't want to bring you a really great, scary story that wasn't based in fact. (laughs) You and I do a lot of debunking, actually, on this show. (laughs) (laughs) For for firm believers in the paranormal and people that consider ourselves to be those that interact with the paranormal, we do a hell of a lot of debunking. But I mean, look at the look at the lineage that like we subscribe to and stuff like Mm -hmm. look at the people we have on our show. These these interview series that we've been doing. um, These are folks that we believe in as investigators. We always rave about the Mm -hmm. new Kirks. Um, Michelle Bellinger was on the show recently. We had Katie Webb on. We've had all kinds of people on Mm -hmm. that. We trust their investigative styles. And so when they come back and they say, I have evidence. I believe it because they're they're more likely to come back and say, I didn't get any evidence. And that yeah. that that kind of, hey, we're OK with saying we found nothing makes me believe it when they say, hey, we found something. And exactly. Not quick to like say it's a demon either. Like n- none of the people we really subscribe to in that realm are firm like oh it's a demon blah like even uh, when june came on to interview someone that is a demonologist that works on removal of demons she treats them in a completely different way than is described here in these cases she's like there's Mm -hmm. demons and then most of them are not you know most of the things that you hear go bump in the night not at all a demon like totally different right exactly that open-mindedness i respect because i think we all know that we don't know it all so it's scary when you do have some investigators like this that project that they have the firm answers. You know, and that was one of those things that when it, we really kind of got it and in, got into this and I started looking at this stuff, I was like, oh, wow, this is really great. And then I went to my next source and I'm like, huh. OK, I literally just read the same thing. And then I went to my next source and my next one. And finally, I went to one where it said the truth about it. And 
backed it up and said, here's where this claim originated. Here's where this went to. And then I found another source to substantiate that. And then I started going, well, these first three sources are all regurgitations of each other. This isn't great. And then this one talks about everything else and this one backs it up. And so after you get to that point, you're just like, okay, I have two different really crazy cases, but this one has all the records to back it up. This one has nothing. This one has claims. And so I'm not saying that, like I said, I don't know. I can never tell you officially what the parents experienced, what the Warrens experienced. I think they experienced something, something that made them believe wholeheartedly for 30 plus years that this was their life. But they did point the fingers at a lot of people that were not responsible for what was going on with them. And I really would love to ask them why. What was the point of pointing the fingers at, for God's sakes, a 12-year-old girl who was brutally murdered? Why would you point the finger at her? You know, and yeah, she was violently murdered. But And the other thing, too, is why I always say, oh, it's a demon, when demons are so rare and so... Usually, like you said, they're not demons. They're not there. Why would we do this? Why would you point those fingers at them? And so, oh, go just ahead. as I'm a sorry. quick quick thought on that before you move on, I I was thinking back um, to the Michelle interview where she said, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people don't have the proper terminology for it. So when someone yes. you know reaches out to her, she asks them, uh, why Why do you believe it to be that sort of entity? And try and go from there, which I'd like to say might be a good one for the parent family because they not being in the field. The the Warrens, though, I don't really think it is much of that excuse because they were very much in the <laughs> field in the and field. they <laughs> should have been growing their their library beyond demon. But mm-hmm. sorry, I just wanted to tack that on because that stood out to me the other day as well. And um, when we mm-hmm. get cases from people, too, as a reminder myself, you know, definitely asking why people what sort of activity do they think is is related to that terminology? Yes, definitely that. And, you know, I truly do believe that there was something going on with the parent family. Whether or not they had paranormal activity prior to them moving into the house or if it formulated after the fact, either way, there was something there that was happening. And as we have talked with Michelle and June and so many other people who have worked in this field, they state that demons come into people's lives truly when there are chinks in the armor. There's something wrong there. And that's when demons can weasel their way in. So in those regards, is there something going on with the family? Or were they just manifesting, quote unquote, a demon? Pagan, did you I don't come know. across in any of your research if the parent family was actually, uh, aside from the haunting, were they at all any reports of, like, domestic, you know, abuse or arguments? The like- only thing I did find was the parents did split up, but it was after they'd moved to Georgia. Um, mm. Was it because of what had happened in Rhode Island? I don't know. Um, I do know that... The father spent a lot of time with Andrea and the filming of a lot of their videos, um, the going back and writing of the books and doing the touring for that. Um, I believe that the mother had some kind of like conversations possibly with the people who were making the film, but she was actually not really... She actually told Lorraine at one point in time, because Lorraine called um, after they had moved and said, we'd like to write a book about this. And she had, Carolyn had told Lorraine, let me think about it and I'll get back to you. Call me back tomorrow. She was outside doing laundry when she went back inside. Apparently the door uh, walking back in became unhinged and fell on her, gave her concussion and dislocated her shoulder. And she took that as a sign, not that perhaps the door was loose, I don't know, or, but she thought that it was the activity from the house in Rhode Island had followed her and basically warned her that she was not allowed to speak to the Warrens about this. And so when Lorraine called back, she told her what happened and said, no, we will not allow you to write a book about this. 
And I believe it was like five or seven years later, her daughter wrote the first book. Wow. That's why I'm like, um, I, I point of order, you wouldn't let them write a book, but you let your daughter write a book. Really? So I think ultimately is they, they didn't want the Lawrence to get the fame for it. Hmm. I don't know. It, it called a lot of things into question. And with the lacking evidence of the story and everything that they had accused and said had happened, there was a lot of things that made me really go, how much of your story is real? Like I said, I yeah. believe something happened to them. I don't know what, but is it to the extent that they wrote about and that they talked about and they told the Warrens? No. I don't think so. That's my personal opinion. That's not fact. That's my opinion. I don't believe that the parents' story is as big and hyped up as they made it believe. I I I would land totally in agreement on that. Where I think there's activity in the house now, or something mm-hmm. residual there at least. I do believe a lot of the case we're looking at is simply a case of family and fame politics, like. The truth is just buried behind people trying to get the leg up on a story and all of the things that get misconstrued from there. So I uh, I, so I guess all in all, Pagan, you came into this case with expectations. How do you feel in hindsight? How were you met? How did it all unfold in your mind? I'm. Disappointed. Not in the case itself. I think the case is still very interesting of a case. I'm disappointed in the individuals who profited from this and their behavior behind it. If they had done the research and put the factual information and not pointed fingers at all the wrong folks and actually put out, you know, good information and their story would have been a lot more credible. Their story would have been a lot more believable. Now I'm just disappointed in their behavior and it really calls into question how much fact was actually there and how much fiction was actually there. So, you know, in terms of that, um, again, it's a very interesting story. It's a great kind of spooky story to read and hear about. And I believe that they did open a door in the house and that's why there's still paranormal activity that goes on there. But ultimately... The case itself was disappointing. Hmm. So, yeah, it it (sighs) didn't scare me. It didn't do anything. It just made me ultimately very sad and sad for the individuals that it harmed in the process. I definitely feel you there. I having a little bit of a tip off to this. I said this in the pre-show. I think I Mm kind of came out of it the same way I went into it. I... (sighs) It, as it tends to be in my mind, I, I'm I'm a poo-pooer when it comes to a lot of haunted houses because I very much believe in haunted activity. I just don't believe in the way it's portrayed through a Hollywood lens a lot of the time. Right. And so this was a case where I kind of went into it, again, knowing that the film we were going to watch, just so we could talk about the differences, I knew that was going to be off base Uh, But again, like I said earlier in this episode, I didn't realize that the, quote, true story of the book was going to be more off base in some ways than the actual film was (laughs) like that, that that James Wan's film stayed fairly true to like claims of paranormal activity from voices to someone being thrown across the room to, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, manifestations of things in the corner that only certain people can see. Like, I, Mm -hmm. I like that stuff. So. I would recommend the film to people and oh, I yes. would recommend um, I would recommend reading about the case separately. But then again, making sure your sources, like Pagan said, are accurate because this case suffers from more, again, politics of who was investigating and what sort of evidence was recorded mm-hmm. and what sort of evidence is easily accessible. So be careful out there when you're looking at this one. And I guess that's my fear for all big name cases. So as we continue to go through them, I'm very excited Mm -hmm. to watch the films to see what Hollywood does. I'm excited (laughs) to see these stories that are internal and sometimes very wrong. Um, Yes. But also find some of the truth behind it, too, because like you said, I don't doubt there was some kind of activity, but I'd be more interested to see if it was the family in some ways. So I guess that one last question for me. 
interesting to see some of it still rubbed off on the house. And I will mm-hmm. very much want to keep abreast of the, the guy that there's a family now that owns it, I believe, that are paranormal investigators. Yes. So they are. It's all rigged up for uh catching things. And I, I, I want to say here and there I've seen articles about certain things being detected. So I, I Brian and I, mm-hmm. I want to say covered one not too long ago on the Revelator Morning Show to dig into that. Yes. There, there's been quite a few crews that actually came out um, and they have caught stuff since then, since the parent family has moved mm-hmm. out. So, you know, Ghost Adventures did it. Ghost Hunters did an episode. There was all sorts of things that have gone on. They, the family that owns it now, um, they do a big Halloween, like live kind of seance kind of thing that you can actually watch every year. Uh, so yeah, th- there's a lot of stuff that still happens. I-, I truly do believe that the paranormal activity that does happen and the fact that it's quote unquote continuing and getting bigger, I think is more manifestation theory than actual spirits. I think that we're manifesting more activity or maybe drawing it out from the universe. I don't know. I interesting. think that could be it, Pagan. Well, if it's good with you, I say we close this chapter on The Conjuring House. Again, I'm I agree. excited to see if anything manifests further in the future. Hey, gang, this is actually Kyle and Pagan from the future. I just said future a second ago um, in, the, in the older recording. But we're popping in out of space time to give you some changes to our streaming, our website, and all the rest. We, as you probably heard us talking about in recent episodes, have decided to move the show over to Facebook. For the time being, because of the holiday season, we are going off schedule. So I will warn you, turn on those Facebook notifications. Look in your podcast description show notes below. You're going to find links to the Facebook pages. Go give them a like. Beyond that, Pagan, what do you say they go over to the website and become a member? They get so yes. many cool things. They get so many amazing, awesome things over on the Become a Member thing. You get access to articles. You will actually get access to our exclusive Facebook group where you actually can come and hang with us, talk to us, and do all sorts of cool stuff. You know, share your paranormal stories. Whatever you guys want to do with us, we will be there to share in all of that cool stuff. So check out our membership section. Think about doing that. And we are going to have a great time communicating with you guys over on Facebook, on the pages, in the group, and everywhere. If you guys have not used Facebook in a while, I recommend you spin it up. They have improved stuff so much. We know there's a big paranormal community already. So I'm guessing most of you out there already have an account. Maybe it just needs a dusting off. Go like those pages. Like Pagan said, go become a member. You'll get access to an exclusive group where we're sharing behind the scenes content. Hey, again, we've reworked it, but we're trying to keep it simple so you guys don't have very many places to go. We like keeping it all under one roof. So like Pagan said, go check out the uh, membership section. Go like those pages and we will catch you in the next episode. I will also say stay tuned to your podcast feeds here because we have new interviews on the way, including something very, very special landing on December 25th. So just keep hold and keep waiting. Look out for more news soon. Thank you all. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.